Welcome to Latinx Like Me, a show where we embrace how beautifully diverse our community is while also celebrating the things that unite us. I'm your host, Emma Cárdenas, a first-generation Mexican-American born and raised in LA. I was fortunate enough to connect with my friend Alejandra Owens for today's episode. We talk about her experience growing up in Arizona, the discussion around what it means to be, quote, Latinx enough, and dive into addressing one's mental health. Oh yeah, there's also an intense declaration of love for flower tortillas and the dissecting of decking out your baby in gold jewelry, bougie abuelita style. I don't know if we (laughs) want to share how we met or the fact that I don't know how long we've been friends, but we've literally only been together in person once. (laughs) I think we are, our, I think our friendship is probably the epitome of, uh, or like peak old school social media friendship, right? Oh man. Um, (laughs) The early days where like uh, nobody knew how to use Twitter and nobody really, everyone still thought it was really weird to be meeting up with people on the internet. Yes. um, Or people you knew from the internet. Um, But like we met at a conference. Yeah. Through um, Peter Shankman. Shankman. Yeah. That like meet up happy hour thing. it was during blog her. I think Peter was maybe speaking or something and um, okay, I'll go meet strangers in Vegas. Like this will be fun. And I think we just started chatting and I was like, oh, she's cool. I like her. Okay. Like <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> and then we just stayed, stayed internet friends forever. Well, again, thank you for doing this. I'm very excited. Um, so I guess let's dive in. Um, so you're born and raised in Arizona, um, and your dad is white, and your mom is Mexican. Is she Mexican American or Mexican? Mexican American. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting because there's the assumption, especially with Arizona being a border state, um, that there's definitely a big Mexican and Mexican American community there. Um, Is that something you encountered? Like, is that actually true? Is that a community you were surrounded by? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I remember growing up, right? Uh, I remember seeing, first of all, I I am not fluent in Spanish. I I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. We didn't speak Mm -hmm. Spanish in my household. Um, But uh, all of the billboards around my house in Tucson and in Phoenix, was always they were always bilingual or primarily in Spanish. Um, my parents live like a ten minute drive away from the Latin grocery store in Phoenix right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I was I was more keenly aware of the the Mexican community around me um, in Tucson when I was growing up because um, my my high school or my junior high, sorry, my junior high school in Tucson um, was predominantly Mexican or Mexican American. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my junior high, the, the vibe was definitely very cholo gangster. So um, when I was, <laughs> yeah, when I was, there was a lot of, well, a lot of one buttons, a lot of like white, white socks, mid calf white socks with, um, adidas or nike slides (laughs) (laughs) did you partake in that fashion yeah so i wanted to so badly um have very very vivid memories of like going to the mall specifically to go to mervyn's and we would go to the shoe department and i was always trying to get my mom to let me buy um the adidas uh soccer uh, or pumas uh soccer shoes right um like the the soft suede ones and my mom is always like nope you're not allowed like you can't buy a Nike Cortez you can't buy the Puma classics um it was a real fight about how big my bangs were allowed to be when I was younger wow because I I wanted the chola like real big bubble bangs and she was like she's like you can have bangs but not like that like it was always this uh, it was a big push and pull when yeah. I was when I was very young, um, uh, my Mexican or Mexican American friends uh, they had older siblings, usually older brothers, and the older brothers were usually in gangs. 
Um, and so my mom was like making a very concerted effort to keep me out of some activity. Mm-hmm. That's so <laughs> funny. I obviously in LA, there's a big, you know, Mexican American culture and also gangs. It just never, until you said that, it never occurred to me that there would also be gangs elsewhere. And like, that's such a stupid thought, but I'm like, oh yeah, obviously there's Mexican gangs in LA, but wow, there's Mexican gangs in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were 40, you know, depending on where you're at in Tucson, you're like 40 minutes to an hour away from the border. Oh wow. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's pervasive. I didn't actually cross the border for the first time until I was in college. So I, I was born in Tucson, lived in Tucson until I was 13. Then my family relocated to Phoenix, did high school in Phoenix. And then I came back to the university of Arizona in Tucson for college. Mm-hmm. And that was when um, I was a Mexican American studies major. Um, I was at the time rushing a Latina sorority. And so I was, oh. we were crossing crossing the border to party every weekend. Um, I spent a lot of time in Nogales, Mexico. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a different, it was a different kind of experience, right? Uh, I was experiencing the culture as an adult or a young adult. Um, I hesitate to call myself an adult at that point in my life. but I, I got to see it from a different, a different angle. I got to see it um, through a different lens, um, maybe arguably a more authentically uh, Mexican lens versus a Mexican American lens, which I think is, uh, those are two very different manifestations of the culture. Yeah, so. for sure. Did you have, like when you went to Mexico for the first time, did you have any expectations going in? Like, oh, I wanna see this, or I'm just kind of going with the flow. Like how long were you there for, do you remember? Um, so throughout college, the extent of my time spent in Mexico was exclusively for partying. (laughs) Okay. Really, really young, dumb, and just like not realizing the opportunities that I had in front of me at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, it also, as a Mexican American studies major, it's not like the program was organizing trips across the border to, you know, do immersion programs or just cultural awareness. There was none of that. I didn't spend a meaningful amount of time in Mexico until I went to Mexico City for like a long weekend, maybe. So maybe like three or four days um, mm-hmm. to visit a friend who was actually um, in Mexico City as on a, like a work assignment. And then I've, I've since been back to Mexico city several times. Um, but yeah, I've literally, I have either spent time in a border town or in Mexico city and I have, I have very little exposure to, to Mexico. Yeah. But even then like that does give you an experience to compare, especially, you know, with the U S with Arizona and see oh, yeah. the differences there, like Mexico city in itself is, it's really its own monster. It's yeah. such a huge city. There's, you know, many different pockets to it. Like in any big city, I, I was talking to a friend and I grew up going to Mexico every summer um, to Michoacan, which is where my mom's family was. And then we'd go visit my aunt Emma in Mexico city. Um, and I just remember my mom being super paranoid that someone was going to kidnap me um, because I was lighter skin. And because my last name um, mm-hmm. is like a, political last name, even though we have no association, but it's, you know, if you're lighter skin, you're immediately, um, you just kind of, yeah, you need to be a little more careful because it's assumed that you have money and that's where the whole like colorism thing comes, comes into everything. That's so funny. So, uh, I guess I have a couple thoughts on that. One is what a blessing that you got to spend time in Mexico with your family. Um, but you have you have explicit ties in Mexico, whereas I, um, because my mother is very much out of contact with her family, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not. I, I my family history is more of like a mythos than it is uh, something that is well documented on paper. Um, I don't I don't know that we have explicit ties to Mexico. I don't know if my family crossed the border. If the border crossed my family. Um, I, I know that my, my lineage is very Native American. Um, I know that those Native American tribes are ones that have historically spent uh, time either straddling a border or again, like the borders crossing them. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't have those specific ties. Like I can't, I can't trace my family back to a specific state or city in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, again, just like such a blessing for you. 
Um, Strangely enough, the one time where I was able to see the direct connection between my lineage and where I grew up was actually on a trip to Spain. Oh. Yeah. Um, When I was in grad school, I was, I, I finished my program in London and I took a, I think a five or six day trip to Barcelona. And when you're spending time in Spain, obviously these are the people that conquered, raped, and pillaged right. uh, <laughs> yep. um, the native populations in what is today Mexico. Um, but you see, you see flora and fauna. So, you know, again, I spent very minimal time in Mexico. So my reference point was just um, trying to understand the connections between the the history of where I lived and and maybe where some of that had come from. But I was looking around and I'm like, hold on, there's like these giant wild agave or these giant yucca plants in in Spain. This is so weird. All of this this all of this like flora and fauna is stuff I've seen before. This is what I grew up around. Then it was like you're walking around the architecture. It looks just like it. I'm in Arizona. So the um the like uh the iron gates and the and the metal welding and things like that and the designs mm-hmm. i was like well this is like my my literal front patio door <laughs> <laughs> at home is you know is these designs so um yeah being in spain was uh it was probably the first time i saw a connection between my lineage and where i grew up yeah do you think um your studies and what you studied kind of helped give you some background that you may have otherwise sought out yourself? Well, I guess what led you to, to study that? And is there anything in particular that stood out to you? Um, oh, gosh. So I, I discovered the major because uh, I guess it was two things. One, I had gone to college with the intention of studying uh, public communications or PR. Mm-hmm. And um, I did not know there was a difference between interpersonal communications and mass communications at that time. And I guess neither did my parents. And so uh, technically I should have been going to Arizona State University for their PR program, but I didn't want to stay in Phoenix. So I went to U of A and uh, it wasn't until I got into my courses that I realized I was, I was signed up for the wrong thing. Mm. And in the same semester, uh, you know how you have to kind of take like uh, extracurricular credits or I don't know, I guess yeah. schools call them different things. But um, one of the options was take, was taking a Mexican-American studies class. It was probably just like an entry-level 101 style history class. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to take that because I was like, oh, if my other choices here are like, you know, women's studies and African-American studies and Mexican-American studies, I'm going to, let's go learn more about my own family and history. Mm-hmm. And I was hooked. Like I was the most engaged in that class than any other class that I was in that semester. So my my initial plan being to you know be a pr major and that failing and then just simultaneously discovering this other program uh i guess it was like a a real downer and an upper all at the same time it was a blessing (laughs) and a curse um i'll never forget telling my mother that i was going to change my major though because i knew it was going to be an issue um because everyone thought that i was going to college for I'm putting air quotes around this, but, you know, technical training, I was going to learn how to do a job, right? I was going to get tangible skills that would set me up well to go make money after college. Right. So uh, my mom was having uh, a garage sale uh, the weekend I came home to tell her. And I told her while there were people like milling around in our garage, because I didn't want her to yell at me. Very smart, make it in public. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so I was just like, so um, I'm going to change my major. And she was like, really, to what? And I was like, Mexican-American studies. And she just didn't say anything. She was like, silence. And then she looked at me and goes, well, I guess you're going to go get a master's degree then. Wow. And I and I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... I do have a master's degree in public relations. Nice. <laughs> I, I kind of joke around. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a good Mexican daughter. I, I did what I was told. Uh, everyone's happy. I have, I have more education than I've ever needed, <laughs> but <laughs> truly it was, it was the best four years. 
I loved everything I was learning. I loved my professors. I loved the subject matter. Um, they had, obviously they had different emphases that you could kind of specialize and focus on. I focused on public policy. Hmm. So it was heavy on history. It was heavy on Mexican American history, activist history, um, voting and voting rights and political histories around uh, redistricting. Um, and so I was, I was whole hog. I was completely engaged and loved every moment of it. Well, I mean, all of that seems like it would come in really handy right now <laughs> on understanding the why so many things are happening or how so many things are happening right now. Cool. Um, so let's just a couple of random, um, well, maybe not so random, but were there any um, like Mexican traditions or customs that were part of your upbringing? What a great question. No. Oh, interesting. Um, so to tell the story of how not steeped in Mexican culture I am <laughs> is, is to tell a story about the time and context in which my mother was growing up. Mm -hmm. So my mom was born in 1954. If you think about what is happening in the country, racially, socially, politically, right, at this point in time. Um, my mom is born the same year that uh, interracial marriage is legalized formally. Wow. Um, and uh, she's born into a very, very Mexican family with a lot of machismo, a lot of very traditional machismo. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandfather uh, was in the Air Force. So he was in the military, again, Let's just remember like racially and socially what's happening in the country. Yeah. So my mother is, um, my mother is uh, living and growing up in Fairfax County, Virginia. Uh, and every three years she's spending some, you know, time somewhere in South America on, on military detail with my grandfather. And so she's hopping in and out of just deeply Latino cultures, right? Probably not her own Latino culture because she's spending a lot of time in South America. Yeah. But um, in the context of being a, person of very obvious color in the military, uh, my grandfather tells my mom, if people ask you what you are, you tell them that you're white. And I, I am a very light-skinned uh, Mexican-American, mm -hmm. and my mother on her lightest day is still five shades darker than me. <laughs> mm. So, you know, like she's extremely brown if she's been even just like in the shade on a really sunny day. <laughs> <laughs> so all that is to say, I don't know how anyone looked at my mom and was like, yeah, sure. You're white. Absolutely. <laughs> um, certainly not looking at my grandfather. My grandfather, I, you know, looks just deeply native American in his mm -hmm. skin coloring and his facial structure. And, um, so there's that they, uh, she is also told to never speak Spanish outside of the household. They mm -hmm. speak Spanish exclusively at home um, and English exclusively outside of the home. So it's, it's a lot of hiding your culture. Um, yeah. And then in, inside the home, she's experiencing probably the least savory parts of, of Latin, Latino or macho culture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she's told women don't go to college. You're, uh, you're here to take care of your brothers, learn to cook, learn to make tortillas from scratch. You know, you're, you're an extension of the, the mother of the family of the matriarch and you need to learn how to keep a home and take care of the, the male figures around you. And my mother is, um, I don't, I don't like using terminology like she's a firecracker or a spitfire yeah. or something like that, but my mom is uh, not a woman to be trifled with. Mm -hmm. And I can see how from a very young age, she's incredibly smart, ambitious, driven, um, educated, right? My mom graduates from high school early. Um, and she's just like not having any of it. She's like, mm -hmm. fuck this shit. <laughs> so, um, she gets, you know, she, she leaves her, her family or her household, her household of childhood as soon as possible, essentially mm -hmm. to be an independent adult. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my mom has, I don't think she would describe it this way, but my mom has a really, a fraught, relationship with her culture. I don't think that my mom was necessarily exposed to the best parts of it. Mm -hmm. I think that um, cult society's response to her being a brown woman was 
my mom experienced real racism, real, um, it wasn't subtle, right? There was no microaggressions in my mother's world. Mm -hmm. Uh, she had a bank teller throw money at her because she did not want to touch her. Um, her, her family on a road trip to take one of her older brothers to college, uh, they were thrown out of a diner because the diner said that they did not serve colored people. So, um, my mom was experiencing just blatant racism and there was no room for cultural pride. There was also no room for, uh, cultural exploration. There was no room for finding the parts of the culture that she wanted to have more of a relationship with, whether it was food or history or the arts. There was none of that. Yeah. Um, her, her Latino experience was very much rooted in her womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward, she has me and there's just, there's so many things about how she was raised and how she grew up that my mother made a very intentional decision to, to change in, in terms of how she was raising me and how she wanted to operate um, our household. Mm-hmm. And so there was no quinceanera. There were not a lot of Mexican artifacts around. Um, there was not a lot of participating in even just food, right? Latin food. Um, don't get me wrong. We've always had a lot of like Mexican food in our family. We eat uh-huh. it. You're, you're living in South America or I'm sorry, in um, <laughs> South like in Tucson or like in the Southwest and um, you can't like your fast food is a burrito joint. So (laughs) we were eating a lot of Mexican food, uh, but she wasn't like, my mother wasn't making, you know, frijoles from scratch. She wasn't, you know, making tortillas once a week for the family. There was not that, that culture of food. Um, We buy our tamales pre-made. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, because my mom just, she rebelled. She was like, I'm not going to learn how to make this stuff. I don't want to. Yeah. Well, obviously there's obviously there's a big reason why. And, and I think that makes complete sense when you're, you know, kind of trying to distance yourself from something that was traumatic for sure. Exactly. Um, is there, and I feel like that's a situation a lot of people can relate to. And to me, it's really interesting that it seems like there's now kind of an upswing of it being like okay to say like yeah I'm Mexican and like I'm doing this like there's more pride Mm -hmm. um well I think it's there's I think there's different kinds of pride now I think that um if you look at again like when my mom is like a teenager or a young Mm -hmm. adult um the kind of Mexican pride that was popping up then it was very much right you've got uh the brown berets Uh, You've got Chicanismo being uh, emerging, right? It's Chicano with an X. This is, this is cultural pride through a social justice lens. Mm -hmm. Um, This, these were in some cases groups that were aligned with like the, uh, the thinking of like the the Black Panthers, right? The Brown Berets and the Black Panthers um, oftentimes paired up um, for different causes and issues. And uh, so to be pride, to be proud of your culture also meant to be at the time, maybe the lens was more to, to be uh, militaristic. Yeah. And that's not my mom's hustle. Mm-hmm. And that certainly was not going to be allowed in her household. So I think her, her options for being pr- proud of her culture felt far and few between, I'm mm-hmm. going to guess. And then even then, I don't know that she was given a lot to be proud of. Yeah. Unfortunately. I think that, have you ever experienced just like knowing how um, then that shifted to, to your upbringing? Have you ever been told, maybe not by family, but externally that you weren't like Mexican enough? Yeah. I mean, I have always said that um, I am too brown for the white people and too white for the brown people um, because I am, I'm mixed race, right? This mm-hmm. isn't just about my, my, my Latinidad is not viewed just through the, the lens of my mother. It's also right. viewed for, through the lens of my father. Mm-hmm. And this, this light skinnedness isn't just because I'm a light skinned Latino, right? I've got, I've got a half white family behind me. So <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think it's, uh, if I look back over time, right? Me trying to be as chola as possible in, in those early years. Um, I was definitely trying to draw a more direct connection to being Mexican. I was trying to, I was trying to at least have the visual signals to the Mexican kids that told them I'm Mexican too, Mm -hmm. because when they just look at me, they're like, she's white. 
Yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I go to middle school and high school in Phoenix and everyone around me is white because we're in a very wealthy area, um, or what seemed like a very wealthy area to me at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're looking at me like I'm extra brown and the, the, the next brownest person in the entire school is the janitor. Mm. And so they're like, you're so spicy. Oh, you're so like the way you dress. Oh, you're so chola. You're so ghetto. And meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like I'm, I'm wearing the like mid calf scrunchy socks and my bangs are big. And it's so funny because it's like in, in white context through a white lens, they're like, you're so Mexican. And then back around the Mexicans are like, girl, who you playing? You white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's just like lather, rinse, repeat. And I've had that experience my entire life mm-hmm. at work in networking circles. Um, you know, I live in Washington, DC. As soon as I got to DC, I immediately started networking in Latino circles because I thought I wanted to work in Latino politics. Um, and like, I wanted to work on immigration issues and redistricting issues and voter rights issues. And, um, immediately it was like, I didn't pass any of the litmus tests. I was light skinned. I don't speak Spanish. Um, I'm mixed race. Uh, they looked at me and they were like, you don't really belong here. We don't understand how, how are you Latino? Um, you go to the networking happy hours oftentimes and everyone is speaking Spanish and it just automatically excluded me from conversation. And so, um, yeah, it just, I, I, I don't belong anywhere. Which is, I, I, I can embrace it now as a unique thing and, and um, uh, I can embrace it in a different kind of way. But in my youth, it was, it's always been a point of consternation for me. Yeah, I know that's rough, especially when you're trying to seek out a new group and they're like, mm, no. Well, I'm trying to find connection and community. And yeah. it's like, well, I go, I go to the white people happy hours and they're like, you're, it's, it wasn't even about race necessarily. They were like, who do you work for? Very, very DC questions, right? Like <laughs> basically I'm not, I'm not powerful enough and nor am I like powered adjacent enough to be mm-hmm. compelling the white people. And then the Latinos, I, I go there and I'm like, well, at least there's my food. And this reminds me of being in Arizona, right? Like right. I see other cultures. I see Brown people. That's like comforting to me in a very white place. Um, and or in a very uh, white context because of my profession. Yeah. And then the brown people are like, mm, take your salsa and go home. Like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't understand what you're doing here. Yeah. Do you think, have you seen that in your, you know, trajectory? I mean, you have like 10 plus years of, of experience. Have you seen that change at all where it's, it's gotten a bit more accepting or there is more diversity within, um, or I guess more diversity acknowledged within the Latino community? What a great question. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's strange that in 2020, we're still having a conversation about how Latino you are if you do not speak Spanish. Right. If you're just looking even at just like straight up census demographic information, the amount of mixed race households that, um, you know, are occurring now, the amount of biracial children that are being born in the American Southwest and, and, and other places too, mm-hmm. um, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that we have Latinos that don't speak Spanish. And yet... I think that the first test of whether or not you can call yourself Latino and participate in Latino communities is whether or not you speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this might just be my, my personal insecurities getting projected out all over the place. (laughs) But I think it's, I think it's valid. And I think, I feel like a lot of people feel this way. Yeah. I think, um, it, uh, uh, what is it? Um, the Pero Like on BuzzFeed, uh-huh. one of the one of the main women who participates or is a content creator in that circle. Um, her name is also Emma, I believe. Uh, oh. She uh, she had a short run series. I think it was like, what did she call it? It was like the Emma, the Pocha Cocha. Oh, it's Maya. Maya. Yes. The Yes, uh, number one, I uh, total sidetrack. I saw that series where she like learns Spanish and then she like goes around learning the like Mexican slang 
or whatever was another one. Um, yeah. I had a call with one of my cousins who lives in Morelia, who I haven't talked to in at least 10 years, but I just randomly like DM'd her on Instagram and was like, let's talk. Um, but she called me a pocha and I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, like they, if I, if I'm in Mexico, they're like, you're not Mexican. I'm in Spain and I like, I'm ordering something from uh, Starbucks and I'm like, they ask you for your name and I say Alejandra, they wrote Alexandra. No. And I'm, yeah, it's so frustrating. Like, uh, there's, uh, there's just no space where I fully fit in. I mm-hmm. fully belong. The great news is, is I think there are communities being built where there are these biracial people. I do think that the community around Mexican Americans, and I say the, the emphasis on the, on the hyphen there, right? Yeah. It is a blending of two cultures. It is unique and different, right? I have several Mexican friends, like from Mexico friends, I have an ex-boyfriend from Mexico Mm -hmm. that don't understand anything about what you're probably in your head is thinking of like traditional East LA Cholo culture, Right. you know, like why are all these people so obsessed with the Virgin Mary? Why are they on like every hood of every car and like keychains and like, you know, painted on the back window of your truck? Um, these, these kinds of things uh, and the, the, the gangster culture and the, you know, tattoo culture and all, and the musical culture is so different here. I think that there is um, a, a resurgence of pride there because I think there have always been waves of people being extremely pr- proud or prideful of their Mexican American heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it gets squelched, yeah. right? It's, you've got like, you've got the zoot suits and the zoot suiter kids and then it's the riots happened <laughs> yeah and then the riots happen it's like you're not allowed to be proud to be mexican american and yeah. and uh and i think we're i think we're on a new wave where i think those especially the biracial kids are allowed to be more proud of different parts of their culture and the blendedness of the culture mm-hmm. is allowed to um yeah. and that makes me feel good I do sometimes feel a little too old to be participating in these conversations now because they feel like very young conversations, but. (laughs) Yeah, but I think there's change to be made on all, on all levels for sure. Um, It's funny. Yeah. When right now, when you were talking about Chola culture, I was like, yeah, that is uniquely Mexican American. Like if I told my cousins, they'd be like, what? Or they'd be like, oh yeah. Like I, I think I've seen that on TV. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a subculture in and of itself. I mean, um, the uh, there's a subculture in Japan. I want to say now, there's a subculture in Japan of uh, folks um, embracing cholo, chola, and cholo culture. Wow, uh, the lo- lowrider culture um, in Japan as well. So it's like you know, it everything gets kind of commoditized and 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 moved around and shared in different in, in different iterations, I guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Mexican American culture is one of them now. I guess we've made it big. <laughs> <laughs> if we've made it to Japan. We've made it. <laughs> yeah. I'm <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Again. I want to um, talk a little bit about your career trajectory. Um, I know you're at Amazon now and you had several years, um, you know, not several, you've had many years in the the communication industries and now you're at Amazon, but I do want to touch on your latest kind of, I don't know if I call it an experiment, but your latest foray into, um, kind of doing a side hustle to help find your, your passion again and, and what that, um, what that did for you. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, so I've been doing communications work for 16 years now. It's great. I love it. I love what I do. Um, But I think like anything you, uh, well, I don't know if it's like anything. I started asking myself, like, what is, what does my time mean? And uh, what does it mean to be, I guess, the master of my own time? And then separately, I was just also feeling both very connected and then and then um, subsequently disconnected from my culture. Um, the context on that is is that I was dating a Mexican man and we were opening a Mexican restaurant, so I felt very connected to the culture. Right, I was learning new things about um, the culture through the history of food mm-hmm. um, from him, but also just from my own personal reading. 
and then uh, and then we broke up. And so um, it's a little uh, like, how am I going to set aside time and prioritize learning about my culture in a meaningful way? And what does it mean to be connected to my culture independently of other people, right? I don't have to have Mexican friends. I don't have to have a Mexican boyfriend to feel connected to my culture. Yeah. Um, and, and what does it mean to explore that on my own independently? Um, and so for me, I think I, I skew towards being a more academic person in life. My first stop on anything is, is like, if I need to learn about something, I'm like, well, there's got to be a book about this. Where's the book? <laughs> yeah. um, and so I went to my local independent bookstore and looked for the Latino section. was super disappointed. <laughs> Not that many books. It's really rare um, to find it more than a shelf sometimes, which is sad. Oh, completely. It was, um, I was, I was gobsmacked. I have to be honest. Um, I don't know why I was gobsmacked. I should not have been surprised. <laughs> and then I, I went to the second, I went to the second um, independent bookstore and they also had just like this terrible selection. And then I think it gets even harder when you're specifically wanting to look at Mexican or Mexican American history and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I just really started uh, doing a lot of like rabbit hole researching on what books were out there. And um, I reached out to my old program at the University of Arizona, Mexican American Studies program. (laughs) And was like, (laughs) I'm looking for texts about these topics. Um, I reached out to a friend who uh, teaches at Cornell's um, hospitality school. So she's she's like knee deep in, in academia through the food lens. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to connect me to some books about various like food history of Mexican, Mexican food and Mexican um, dishes and ingredients. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the privilege of meeting um, several women who are very close to the mezcal industry in Mexico and know a lot about um, the history of mezcal. And so I am making it a point to consume their content more regularly and pay attention to those, those folks who are bringing that lens and, and offer opportunities to, to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, there's plenty of uh, Mexican history Instagram accounts, right? And I've seen some of those. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of them too are regionalized, um, you know, specific to LA, uh, specific to border communities. Um, I have a friend who is in um, in uh, commerce and trade um, in uh, McAllen, Texas. So I've asked him for different texts and articles that he finds. And I think like anything in life, it's about putting out the APB and telling people that you care about something and that you're interested in learning more mm-hmm. so that they can be on the lookout for you and, and help you curate that, um, that, I guess, that roster of information. Yeah. Um, but as I'm learning, the more and more I'm learning, the more I, I really want to be able to create a community and a space uh, for people who are like me that I did not feel like I had growing up. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of instead of looking around other people's communities and feeling like, woe is me, I don't fit in. Um, how can I be the master of my own destiny? How can I create a space where people like me can flourish, where we can be extra Mexican and not speak Spanish? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or, you know, people even like you and I, how can we find sisterhood and how can we share an interesting information um, amongst each other and just, you know, and, and have that sense of community and connection. And so, you know, maybe someday that's going to be uh, a cafe, right? I love, I love the food industry. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday it'll be a retail shop. Um, I love retail. I think that there's lots of opportunity to elevate um, artists and makers and artisans, uh, whether they're Mexican-American or in Mexico, um, to, to elevate and amplify what they're making and, you know, put a 20% upcharge on it and sell it to some white people. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I think that's awesome. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes it is um, putting out what we're looking for because people are, you know, so many, I mean, the internet is so fucking vast someone is bound to come across something totally. that you're looking for. Exactly. And it's, it's not to say, I, I don't think I, I don't think what I would do would be groundbreaking, 
right? I think if you look in Tucson, in Phoenix, in Austin, um, if you look in Los Angeles or any of the other, like in the Inland Empire, <laughs> these spaces exist in other places. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I've lived in DC for 15 or 16 years now, um, but those spaces don't necessarily exist here. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's how do I bring that sense of community and safety and connection and inclusion that I feel when I'm in other cities or when mm-hmm. I'm home? How do I bring that here? Yeah. And I think that's really cool. It's, it's really hard to, I guess, no, I guess it's easy to forget how big this country is that while, yes, there's a lot of us here in, in LA and there's spaces like that popping up, like they are needed elsewhere. And it might not be like, you know, like you said, groundbreaking or whatever, but it doesn't mean it's any less needed. Yeah. I mean, Mexicans are everywhere, man. I do want to touch on two more things with you. One is mental health, because I know that's something that in our community, I mean, there's, there are many things that are, you know, quote unquote, not talked about and you don't air, you know, your dirty laundry and, and all that stuff. But can you tell us about your first, um, brush with addressing your, your mental health? Yeah. So, um, I was in high school and gosh, maybe, I think maybe it was sophomore year, maybe junior year. I couldn't tell you for sure. Um, so I was in, uh, the international baccalaureate program, which is just like, it's just like AP classes, but it's Mm -hmm. international. Um, Mm -hmm. And in my school, at least, or at least in my head, maybe, maybe it wasn't like this, this, this kind of experience for my peers, but I thought it was a very competitive program. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also had uh, my very well-intended parents who wanted nothing but the best for me. (laughs) So uh, they were, but my parents have always really believed that, um, you know, education is, is the equalizer. And um, it's also the thing that like uh, superpowers the flywheel for success. And so there was a lot of pressure on me to perform very well in school. And Mm -hmm. so it felt like I was just getting kind of, I was getting pressure from every angle. And then um, I think now that I can look back, I was getting, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. Um, It is very possible that, you know, in my little, whatever, like 16 year old brain, I didn't realize that most of the pressure was coming from myself and not from these external factors. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, that's how it felt. And um, I think that, again, looking back, right, I, that was my first brush with anxiety, chronic anxiety, Mm -hmm. uh, my first brushes with depression. Um, And, and ultimately, my, my first experience was suicidal ideation as well. Um, And, you know, thank God, nothing, nothing bad happened. I didn't harm myself. Um, I didn't, I didn't try to actually bring that to to fruition. Mm -hmm. But um, it stands out to me as, as something I, I, it, it stands out as, as a moment where I realized that this was something that was going to be with me the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've continued to have anxiety. I've continued to have uh, bouts of depression. I've uh, sadly have still had a, a couple of other brushes of suicidal ideation. Um, but I didn't really seek formal medical help. So I didn't, I didn't see a therapist until I was in my early to mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then I went to the therapist for the first time, uh, because I was having relationship troubles or dating troubles. I wasn't there because I was like, Oh, I've, I think I have a mental health issue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, 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 no. It's just like, it's just this like stress I'm having around dating and stuff. Um, and, uh, I love therapy. I think therapy is great. I talk about it widely uh, without any shame mm-hmm. um, at work. I, I openly talk about how great my therapist is. I tell people if they want a referral, I'm happy to give it to them. Um, if somebody tries to post uh, a meeting with me while I'm either, you know, commuting to therapy or now when I'm like on the Zoom call with the therapist, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll tell them, I'm like, I, I would love to participate in this conversation. Unfortunately, this is when I have therapy and I really have to prioritize therapy this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't be able to move it. You know, I'm sorry. I'm very, I'm extremely 
open about it. I think some people are like, holy shit, like she talks about therapy a lot. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think I talk about therapy uh, in, in proportion to how much therapy is not discussed by most people. So <laughs> yeah, it's still, I mean, I love that. I think talking about it does help normalize it. And if you can normalize it for one person, then hopefully that keeps going. Exactly. You know, I think sometimes people also look at me and they're like, what are you in therapy for? Um, you know, like I, 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 I am a high functioning person mm -hmm. and, um, whatever that means. And I, I, I probably wear it as an unhealthy badge of honor, right? Like I am anxious and high functioning while I'm anxious, <laughs> um, but I have to, I have to have tools in my toolbox to help, um, to help me be high functioning and to help me achieve my goals and the things that I want for myself in my life and in work and therapy has been, has become probably the number one thing in my toolkit. And I will also fully um, acknowledge the privilege in being able to do that. Um, first, I had to overcome personalized stigma. Um, I still haven't talked about the fact that I go to therapy with my family. I think my mother would probably be very supportive of it now um, or just very like, well, if it works for you, great. Like, okay, kid, do whatever you got to do. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't ever want my parents to feel like the fact that I'm in therapy is a statement about how they raised me or make them ever feel like something, they did something really bad or wrong with me. Right. Um, so I, I just, I, I, that's like the one area where maybe the stigma lingers and I, I don't talk about it with them, but pretty mm -hmm. much everyone else I'll talk about it all day with. <laughs> steps, there's steps. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's, it's interesting that you talk about being high functioning cause I am as well. Um, and I think that's where people or some people could be like, well, like you look fine to me or like, yeah, you still go to work. So you can't be that right. bad. And you're like, well, doesn't really work that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, I mean, even like just this last week I had a, re I had a really, really rough week and I'm like, I told my boss, I was like, I'm completely unmotivated and I think I'm just really depressed. Mm -hmm. And I was smiling the entire time I said it, <laughs> so like, you know, I, I don't think uh, like mental health, uh, there's a spectrum and, and some what's really bad for me might not be really bad for someone else. And mm -hmm. uh, what's, you know, what's mild for someone else might be really bad for me. It's, it's a completely individualized experience. Um, and you just have to, I think you have to build your own calibration system um, and, and be able to check in with yourself and have a language around it so that you can inform the people who care about you most or the people you are accountable to most, like your boss. Right. Um, so you can talk to them about that and then you can help them, them calibrate and be better informed about how to support you in, in what you're trying to, to deal with while you're also trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Something you touched on earlier that I definitely want to talk about is relationships and in particular relationships with someone who's Latinx. And I don't know if that was ever like, I don't want to say an expectation, but something that was mentioned like, oh, well, it's just kind of that unspoken, you know, expectation that I do date someone of my own, you know, ethnic background or whatever. And of course, um, if you had any brushes with the infamous machismo culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I've dated, uh, of, uh, I, I don't know, of all the minorities that I've dated, I've dated more Mexican and Mexican-American men than any other minority, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a function of where I grew up, right? I think it's a function of um, when I was in those formative years where you're forming attractions to people around you. I was primarily surrounded by Mexican dudes. Yeah. This is all to say though, it is, it is much to my mother's dismay. Um, mm -hmm. My mother, quite the opposite. There was not an expectation that I would be with a Mexican or Mexican American man. Mm -hmm. um, my mother, again, I mean, she grew up in this incredibly macho household Mm -hmm. And having experienced some of the most sexist parts of the culture directly, my mother was like, I, I just, I don't want that for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think this is for you. Uh, and I hate it when my mom's right. <laughs> 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 um, 
not like, listen, I know that there are incredibly progressive Latino men that, that don't engage in the, in the stereotypical machismo. Um, I haven't, I haven't found him. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have absolutely brushed up against some of the, the macho culture that my mom experienced, obviously not at the same level because it was in her family. It was in her, it it was the patriarchy, um, in her family. Uh, I, I did not experience that stuff, but, um, Yeah, I just, I don't think that I, I don't think I've thrived in those relationships in the same way that I thrive in, uh, in other healthy relationships or have thrived when I'm single, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. So that, that's just, we're just like, that's the focus on the bad stuff. Of, Of course, there's a lot of other wonderful parts about dating somebody that is in your culture, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like there are a lot of things that are unspoken right? Uh, The familial relationships. Mm -hmm. When I date white men, they think it's really weird how frequently I talk to my mother. (laughs) Um, I talk to my mom every day, or at least we're texting every day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Even from far away, my mom is still like, you know, up in my shit. Yeah. I give her enough information to be up in my shit. (laughs) And we're Uh, When we talk about, um, I think the real, I think the thing that always stands out for me most when I'm talking to whether it's a a white boyfriend or even just a white friend, when I talk about my parents aging and the experience of them aging, um, there is a assumption on my part that I will be taking care of them in my household. Yeah. Um, And that is just, that is just not the case. Like my white boyfriends were never like, yeah, mom's going to move in with me someday. Whereas I'm like, can't wait for the old gal to move in. <laughs> like, how, how are we going to make this work? <laughs> you know, and I have, I have very active conversations with my mom about what it's going to look like someday mm-hmm. when she's aging and, and I have a house of my own someday. Like I was telling her, D- Washington DC is really famous for its row houses with English basements where people, you can have like a full functioning apartment in the basement. Oh, and nice. I told her one day, I said, well, well, you know, maybe I'll just get a row house and you can live in the basement. And she said, me, that in the basement? <laughs> Do you not love me? <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, okay. I'll figure out how to get a house so that there's a yard and we'll put like, I don't know, like a tiny house in the backyard or something. <laughs> it, it is, no, you're right. There are some things that, um, whether it's, it's a boyfriend or, or even a friend that they're like, yeah, like I get it. Like, when you're yeah. Saying, like, yeah, totally makes sense. Does not yeah. sound crazy to me at all. Whereas like other people will be like, oh, I don't know. Like my parents have, you know, their savings or like they have it figured out. Like it's their problem. And I'm yeah. like, no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, it's all, it's our problem. Right. Exactly. Right. It's our problem. And to be with me means that it's going to be your problem too, because right. my mom is probably going to be living in a tiny house in the backyard. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it's, it's also, you know, it can be silly stuff. Like, uh, if you're dating somebody in your culture, what is, what is comfort food? Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you have to explain to somebody or they don't understand how to make your comfort food or they just don't get it, or maybe they think it's weird and they don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's less common with like Mexican food because I think it's pretty prolific. Everybody understands how comforting refried beans can be, but, um, but not everybody can make refried beans. Um, Yeah. There's just, uh, there's that really subtle, uh, it's like the opposite of having to code switch, I suppose. Mm -hmm. There's just things you don't have to say. Yeah. And that can be, that can also be really comforting and, and really nice as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, something that I have found. So the gentleman I'm dating right now, he is uh, a first generation child of Korean immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, a person of color, uh, with an immigrant experience in their family, um, it, it mirrors very closely to mm-hmm. what I experienced dating some, some of the more like traditional Mexican men from college let's say right or or even in adulthood um there's there are things that i don't have to explain to him either there are just kind of cultural touch points and points of view that he gets i don't have to explain that to him and that's also very comforting so yeah totally i can see that because i mean especially now we're seeing a lot of a lot of people's stories being shared and you're like oh well i'm not like my family's not like a jamaican immigrant family but like totally get that. Like that makes sense to me. Like that dynamic makes sense to me. 
Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, since you brought it up, I feel like we have to talk about food because <laughs> as you said, like who doesn't love Mexican food? What are your comfort foods, like comfort Mexican dishes? Tamales, hand down. I just... You're savory. Savory. Oh, okay. I, it is so hard to find good tamales, uh, at least here in Washington, D.C. Really? I think I've had... Yeah, well, so uh, D.C. has a very uh, El Salvadorian population. Okay. And so, and so they, you know, they make things slightly differently. There's like a different twist on it with through, through that different cultural lens. And so, um, and then there are Mexican restaurants here that do have, they have tamales. They're here. Uh, They're just, they don't, you know, they're just not hitting the way they used to hit when I was growing up. Uh, like I said, it's not like my mom was like, you know, having a tamalada once a month and we were like pumping out 120 tamales as a family. It's not like I had that experience. It's just that we had the tamale lady and we knew we could go get them from her and they were really, you know, high quality, great handmade tamales that were probably made by an old lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in, you know, in Tucson, there's like a, there's a market where you have people that are doing that kind of stuff. So yeah. I, I mean, if someone knows about it here in Washington, D.C., if someone's listening and they're in D.C. and they've got the hookup on a great tamal, I'll take it. Let's go. What kind of tamal is your favorite? Because there are like so many different. I know I mine are the rajas and cheese, the jalapeno and cheese tamales are oh, my favorite. So good. You know what? Oddly enough, the best rajas I've ever had is at a Mexican restaurant in freaking Seattle, Washington. Oh, Okay. Yeah. It's this little Mexican restaurant. It's a family run operation. Uh, I cannot remember what it's called for the life of me. I'll send it over to you after we talk, but they have the best rajas I've ever had. So good. And this like spicy, creamy sauce and then the cheese on top. So good. Anyways, (laughs) uh, probably, probably like shredded pork. Mm. I'm a shredded pork kind of gal. With the red and, sauce. Uh, but also like, yeah, and the red sauce. I was going to say growing up that the tamales you had the choice between was, do you want the red ones or the green ones? And I always got the red ones. So. <laughs> it's so, wait, did you always have tamales? Cause I know for us, like tamales are only a Christmas thing. Like we only have tamales in December and I can't think of any other time where like we'd go to a family thing or even where like that was an option. It's just like December yeah. tamale time. That's a really good question. Um, I think they were probably just a Christmas thing. Here's what changed the game. Costco. (laughs) 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 So uh, Costco, I don't know if people know this, but Costco is, uh, they have stock, regional stock. And um, in Costco in Arizona, uh, first of all, you can get a pallet of green chilies, hatch green chilies, which I cannot get here in DC. Wow. Um, yeah. It's a little, the little yellow cans. Yeah. yeah. It's like the <laughs> shit that every Mexican has in their household, like my pantry staple. Yeah. yeah. They have that in bulk. And then, um, which of course my parents buy and, <laughs> and, um, in the freezer section, they have tamales, frozen tamales. Huh. And so, Yeah. Uh, it's not like my parents have it stocked all the time, but it's like on occasion they will get, they'll get the bag of frozen tamales and it's easy because obviously now you've got a microwave, you just wrap them in like a wet paper towel and throw them in the microwave and you've got dinner in two minutes. So I'm going to have to check my Costco. I've gotten the frozen tamales from Trader Joe's. Um, not the same. <laughs> I will try Costco. <laughs> I'm so, whenever I'm at Trader Joe's, like I'm deep on the Asian food section. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm dating a Korean immigrant. So he's just like, he's like, don't, don't do it. Why are you doing it? I'm like, are you going to get mad at me if I get these dumplings? But then I, then I like look at the Mexican section and I'm like, what is this trash? These burritos, these microwavable burritos. (laughs) Oh, not going to lie. I always get the bean and cheese, like refrigerated burritos. So I'm like, you know, I don't care. I don't want to cook one burrito and <laughs> it with Cholula and there's lunch. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, no, but I, a close second to the tamales is um, a, a really, really good flour tortilla. Ooh. And controversial statement. 
I don't think you can get a good flour tortilla out of outside of the American Southwest. It doesn't exist. Like, Where, and other than Mexico, like I get a flour tortilla that's like delicious. Well, again, when I was growing up, I remember going grocery shopping with my mom, and part of going grocery shopping would be going to get a dozen or two dozen tortillas every week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. And we would go to a specific place that sold them. Like that was what they did. They oh. made tortillas. Okay. Um, I am. I have been told that there are two main uh, manufacturers of flour tortillas in Phoenix, Arizona, and that they're both really good. And people, it's kind of like the the Philly cheesesteak rivals, right? Like people either uh, love this brand or that brand. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried them yet. Um, this is how much uh, like flour tortillas are a big deal for me. People. <laughs> People buy them. Oh, also my very best friend since I was five years old, she knows how much I love tamales. She, there's a, there's a a Mexican restaurant in Tucson that makes them and ships them internationally. And she, for Christmas, will send me me, like two dozen tamales. Um, But same thing. (laughs) It's the same thing though with the, with the tortillas now too. Um, my friends have started sending me tortillas. It's like, no, these are the best ones. No, no, no. These are the best ones. Everyone's trying to send me like the best tortillas. So I love it. My love language is tortilla. Send me anytime. Flour tortillas. Flour tortillas. The reason is, is that when I was little and I came home from school, my after school snack would very frequently be a hot buttered flour tortilla. Yes, exactly. Roll it up. up. Yeah, really still. I mean, I don't get fresh flour tortillas, but I will always have a pack of flour tortillas in the fridge for like my lazy, like, I just need a nibble and it's, yeah, it's a rolled up flour. I don't put butter on it anymore, but it's just like a rolled up flour tortilla and that'll hold me over. Um, Okay. To end on one note, I'm going to give you some random, some of them are stereotypes. So can't wait to look on your face, Um, but just, oh my God. The rapid fire questions. Okay. Rapid fire. Here we go. Have you ever blasted your music and cleaned the house on a Saturday morning? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> do you get down to some... How else do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> do you get down to some ranchera music ever? Oh, infrequently. But yeah, when it comes on, your girl's dancing. <laughs> Did you know that Norteño trap is a thing? What? Yes. Okay. So my friend, my friend works for LA Magazine, and she gets all the like the PR press releases and stuff. And she was like, "I got one for you. <laughs> I will send you. I'll send you the 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 YouTube video. It is wow. a fucking plus." <laughs> all right. Have you put tahine on your fruit? Yes. Okay, I've never tried tahine, to be honest. Really? Okay, secret secret confession time. I I didn't really participate in Mexican condiments until until I was dating the 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 Mexican chef. Yeah. You know how like there'll be like the the Mexican enamel pins and it's like tahine and all this other shit. The only yeah. pin I've ever related to is Vicks vapor rub. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. That's, yeah. And I yeah. literally just bought some tahine recently and I bought some jicama sticks from Whole Foods and it's still like the jicama went bad and the tahine is still in the pantry. I gotta tell you, girl, I mean, it might be a recent addition to my life, but I love that shit. Uh, okay. Tapatillo or Cholula? Oh, or- man. Cholula. <laughs> Did you have your ears pierced before your first birthday? Oh, fuck yeah. Six months, man. <laughs> I, all right, another quick story. I know this is rapid fire. I still have my original baby hoops oh, because wow. what is a Mexican ear piercing if you're not putting hoops on your child? I had them, I still have them and I had them made into a necklace. Wow. I didn't get hoops. I got the like massive round gold balls. <laughs> That's cute too. It's cute too. Did they have like the flat back? Like uh, the, yes. Yeah. yeah. They were just like massive. And I'm like, why would you put that on a baby? <laughs> They're like, let's make her look like a really bougie abuelita. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. That's the look. I was trying to, I was talking to a friend and I was like, what is it like with the earrings and like the gold ID bracelet and like all this jewelry you put on children? <laughs> 
Bougie that's the look. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, Bougie Abuelita. I have so, I was stacked in the gold jewelry department in elementary school. I still have all the rings that I used to wear. It was like a five finger ring situation in elementary school. And I had the, like the gold ball earrings I had, I was like, I still have, I love this. My, my white godfather got it for me. It's, um, it's a crucifix, Mm -hmm. but it is yellow gold filigree. And then Jesus is rose gold. (laughs) How baller is that shit? Wow. It's turned into a talisman for me. If I, if you see me wearing that thing, it means that I'm going through like a difficult time and I need like a little bit of like a back me up. Um, that's when I wear it. That's when I wear it now. So it's really, it's really sentimental and I love it, but I just can't get over like Jesus and rose rose gold. How fucking great is that? That's really progressive. Just given like, we're about the same age and I feel like it was always just yellow gold everything I have I have all the bracelets I wore when I was little I had all the rings resized so that I can wear them now I was wearing one of them last night it's a little it's a little rose little little yellow yellow gold rose (laughs) oh I love it I know why we deck out the babies but hey whatever (laughs) but they look great if anyone wants to understand why I love jewelry so much I'm like very into jewelry um, I was pre pandemic. I worked at a, I worked at a jewelry store on the weekends. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's for, all from my mom. <laughs> she did it to me. She pierced my ears when I was six months old. I love it. Well, on that note, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> um, this was so fun. And Great. thank you again. Thank you. I feel like um, I think you're starting a really awesome community of of Latinos uh, that will that will hopefully start to feel uh, more included from all of their different backgrounds and all of their different worldviews. So, congratulations on starting a podcast. Thank you. Yes, that is the hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Latinx Like Me is executive produced and hosted by me, Emma Cardenas. Remember to subscribe and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And please leave a review. It's a great way to help us grow and show your support. Feel free to reach out on Instagram at LatinxLikeMe or via our website, LatinxLikeMePodcast.com if you would like to nominate someone to be featured or just want to say hi. See you next time.